0: we just celebrated our nation's 242nd birthday this week. Many of us celebrated by attending parades and hosting cookouts and watching fireworks. Some of us just spent the week trying to beat the heat, right? It was brutal. Well, the 4th of July, for me, often signals uh, sermon preparation. I've been an irregular preacher for the 4th of July timeframe, many a time, many a church, as the regular pastor gets their chance uh, for a well-deserved break. So I celebrate my 4th, um, sweating, reading my Bible commentaries, and trusting that I'd have a word of God for the people of God. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Well, Pastor Tom Van Antwerp from the Wilmington campus kicked off our series last week with a wonderful call to be part of the resistance movement. He He invited us to find true contentment in the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the providence of God as we resolve to say no to lesser loves. And today, we're gonna find out that we may have some of our priorities and affections misplaced, but not to worry God has a better plan for us. Well, immigrants and immigration, it's a hot topic today, isn't it? Who's come legally, who has not? What do we do about families um, who have been separated at the Mexican border? How do we wisely weigh the concerns of security and legality, compassion and generosity with prudent policies? My little head, doesn't have the solution, (laughs) I'm sorry. But I can tell you that I am the proud second-generation descendant of an immigrant grandfather and parents from China and Myanmar. Over a century ago, in 1901, at the end of the Qing dynasty in China, my paternal grandfather came to the US in search for economic opportunity. According to the people who earned their PhDs studying migration patterns, many people came between 1880 and 1914. Over 20 million people, mostly Southern and Eastern European immigrants, arrived, and they found jobs in factories in, in the Northeast and in the Midwest, in the cities in these places. And I suspect several of you can probably trace your family background's immigration history to this pre-World War I timeframe. Well, my grandpa, he arrived first in Portland, Maine, not a hot destination for Chinese-Americans even back then. (laughs) He made his way to Boston, though, and he was one of the first settlers in Boston's Chinatown. He left a poor agricultural district in the Pearl River Delta, a section called Toishan in the Guangdong Province in southern China. He came to find a way to support his family. Industrializing America needed workers and my grandpa had a strong back and a willing heart. So what did he end up doing for work? One of the things he ended up doing was something that needed not much capital and not much English, so he started a hand laundry. Where? 37 Bowdoin Street on Beacon Hill, not far from Boston City Hall in Government Center. In those days, it was a really sketchy part of town called Scully Square. Um, Old-timers would know that, old-time Bostonians. My grandpa was the eldest of five brothers, and he promised each of his brothers that he would bring to America either his brother or one of his brother's sons. So as he cleaned and as he pressed sailor uniforms, as he cleaned and did the laundry for the cabots and the lodges on Beacon Hill, he saved and he scrimped and he kept his word. One by one, someone from number two to number three to number five brother and their fa- or their family came to the US. Here's a picture of some of the boys, left to right. My dad, my uncle David, my grandpa, the tall one in the middle, and then his two nephews. And here's a picture of the fancy Italian restaurant that is now at 37 Bowden Street. I want you to know I'm okay about this. Italians and Chinese share a love for the noodle. <laughs> <laughs> so unless you and I are of pure Native American heritage, everyone in the United States is of immigrant descent. We or our descendants before us have come for many reasons, which include reunification of our families, better employment or educational opportunities, better health care. Some of us have come fleeing conflict, violence, or persecution based on race, religion, or nationality. Many have come searching, dreaming, hoping for a better way of life than that which would be available in their prior country of residence. Well, I think my family members came to the U.S. in search of security, believing in the American dream that their hard work and sacrifices would provide educational opportunities that would lead to a better future for the next generation. Early Chinese settlers referred to America by this name Jinshan which means gold mountain gold mountain in China our family was materially poor they were barely making it farmers in fact my cousins back in the village today still sell vegetables in the nearby big city My mother only had fifth-grade education in China. My dad finished technical secondary school here in Boston. And my siblings and I are the first generation um, to have college and university educations. So yes, the Yeps, are poster family for the Horatio Alger rags-to-riches story. But I want us to think today about the passage which asks the question, what are you pursuing in your life? Is it security? The kind of security and opportunity money, hard work, and connections can buy? What are you dreaming for? The rags to riches American dream? The chase of epic vacations that you can post on Instagram and get many followers to join you? Are you going after faster, brighter, newer, latest, greatest, and best? Or in my case, are you pursuing Burlington's best-behaved dog who runs rapidly and happily towards me when I call her name every single time. (sighs) My heart be still. Okay. What are you chasing after in your personal hamster wheel of life? Follow along with me as I read from Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Don't store up treasures here on Earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart also will be." Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to, the lo- to God. This story occurs in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he helps his disciples understand how life in God's kingdom ought to be. It's hard hitting, it speaks to our, well, if I'm more honest, it speaks to my materialism, my consumerism, and my love of things. What do you and I really value? What do you and I really care for and worry about? Well, today's scripture, Matthew 6:19 to 34, addresses what we value, and it presents four sets of contrasting alternatives. Two treasures on earth and in heaven, two bodily conditions, light and darkness, Two masters, God and mammon, and two preoccupations, our bodies and God's kingdom. I want us to take a look first at the first three, two treasures, two bodily connections, and two masters. And Jesus doesn't mince words. Verses 19 to 24 are all about money. You're probably feeling squirmy right now, and you should, because our Lord pulls no punches. In the first comparison, Jesus is unambiguous. Treasure on earth decays, it rusts, it can be stolen and it doesn't last. What Jesus values, he deposits in the bank of heaven. But you're thinking, I can see the bubbles out of your head, you're thinking we've got to eat, I've got to provide for my family and myself, right? Surely Jesus is not opposed to meeting some of our basic obligations of life, right? What is Jesus prohibiting us to do when he tells us not to hoard treasure on earth? Well, British Bible scholar John Stott suggests that there's no ban on possessions themselves. Scripture doesn't ban private property. And he says, saving for a rainy day is not forbidden to Christians. The the Bible praises the ant for storing food for winter and says that the believer who makes no provision for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And thirdly, we're to enjoy the things the creator has given us richly to enjoy. So what is Jesus saying? What's the kind of treasure that he does approve of and thinks is best for us? It seems that Jesus is speaking against the selfish accumulation of goods and extravagant and luxurious living. He's against us choosing to live in prestigious, comfortable, extravagant bubbles where we isolate ourselves from the world's pains, hurts, and needs. Money can buy us isolation and can buy us a rarefied view of the world. And it's a foolish fantasy that we may have that says a person's life consists of the abundance of possessions. The real snare is not making sensible provisions about our futures, but it's being covetous. It's being people who hoard and want more. It's that extreme attachment to things that's our spiritual peril. So this goes both ways. We can have an extreme attachment to things when we are materially poor. I think of students, you know, in those days when you have very little, you think, "Oh." This is not my issue, I don't have a lot of stuff. But you know, when we're materially poor, we can think, if I only had this or that, my life would be entirely better. And we can have an extreme attachment to things when we are materially better off like pursuing extreme financial security for our families or for our own retirement, or getting into the best college or grad program, or having the most awesome romantic relationship worthy of being viewed on The Bachelor, or the most lit wardrobe, or driving the latest and best environmentally friendly, technologically advanced vehicle on our clogged roads here in Boston. (laughs) Who or what captures the affections of your heart? Friends, when we put our trust in our things or our achievements, when we're preoccupied with storing treasure on earth, then we really live as if God doesn't matter. In his economy, materialistic consumerism actually produces insecurity, not security. We're always asking, is what I have enough? Is it gonna be enough? Well, knowing our humanity so very well, Jesus knows our hearts follow what we treasure. And in the biblical worldview, our hearts are the center of our personality and includes our minds, our emotions, and our will. Our heart controls our direction and our values. We are actually in love with what we think will lead to our highest good. So Jesus invites us to value what God values, not what our culture around us values and tells us is important. NPR commentator Aaron Freeman says, Our consumer culture makes us constantly aware of what we don't have. Consumer culture wants to create insatiability and deifies dissatisfaction. One commentator wrote, Possessions are like light beer. It may taste great, but it's less filling. (laughs) Unchecked consumerism and materialism are some of the things that make the hamster wheel go round. My housemate Linda and I uh, just rejoined Costco after a hiatus of eight years. The lure was a Groupon, and kaboom, now we're executive members. (laughs) There are two of us in our household and a medium 40-pound dog. But walking into this consumer castle, this monument to all I needed and more, I started to think, I need a 55-inch ultra-high-definition TV. I need a couple of voice-activated Wi-Fi-enabled plugs for the lamps, and certainly, certainly, I needed that huge double pack of turmeric, because turmeric is good for you, right? Double pack is better. (laughs) Uh, But instead of capitulating to my inner consumer entirely, reason prevailed, and as I packaged our items into those half-cut boxes that they give you to bring home stuff, I kept thinking, I'm saving lots of money. And, in fact, as I looked at the way that they display things, I thought to myself, I'm saving lots of money in this place. Uh, And I thought as I left, I resisted, I resisted. But, you know, I ended up going out, and I'm now the proud owner of a Costco Visa card. (laughs) Vive la resistance. Well, in contrast to all I can purchase on Amazon and get delivered to me in two days as a prime customer, the treasure that lasts is found in part through helping meet the basic needs of others, neighbors near and far. What are some of the treasures of heaven that we might pursue? Doing righteous deeds, suffering for Christ's sake, forgiving those who are really hard for us to forgive, using our material wealth wisely and generously, sharing with others, giving to the poor, growing ourselves in Christ-like character, increasing in faith and hope, introducing others to our Savior Jesus. Jesus is saying, these are the kind of treasures that will last through eternity. They are worth giving ourselves to. Our Grace Chapel partner, Pastor Vitali from Jesus Savior Church in Moldova, recently wrote about the baptism of several deaf folks in his congregation. All are from non-Christian, Christian, all are from non-Christian homes and several of their parents were opposed to their baptism. Pastor Vitali asked each of them as he baptized them, why do you want to be baptized? And one of the young men in this picture said, I want to be baptized because I want to suffer with Christ. Guess who's making a deposit in the right treasury? How else? Paul Borthwick, author and my predecessor here at Grace, in a recent interview, suggests that we should attempt to say soft-hearted. He realized that in the 24-hour news cycle, it brings us endless stories of war, of famine, of calamity, of global governmental folly, and it's very, very easy for us to get desensitized. Paul suggests to combat this, to pray, Lord, help me to see the people in front of me, whether it's on TV or those near me. Help me to see them as you see them. This spring, I had the privilege of visiting some of our partners in the Middle East. I heard amazing story after amazing story about how God is at work in this important region, often through miracles and dreams. I, had per- I heard pastors from this region say that more people from the majority faith have come to faith in Christ in eight years since the Arab Spring than in the 200 years of the modern missionary effort in the Middle East. Let me repeat that. More people have come to faith in this eight years since the Arab Spring than in 200 years of modern missionary efforts in the Middle East. Something to thank the Lord for. He's doing something amazing in the Middle East. There are four million people living in Lebanon today. Three million of them are Syrian refugees. One million are Lebanese. And there are only 10,000 evangelical Christians of this one million. One of these Lebanese believers felt God calling him to leave his normal job and train for pastoral ministry. After he graduated from seminary, he pursued his second career and started a small church on the border with Syria, close to a camp full of refugees with the intention of ministering to them. They regularly experience signs and wonders, he says, biblical things that you never could dream about as this church practiced biblical hospitality and generosity, sharing the gospel and the love of Christ with their refugee neighbors. One day, a mother in the camp got the heartbreaking news that her grandson was not recovering from his illness. Her daughter's family had sought refuge from the Syrian Civil War uh, in Germany. But the call came, nothing could be done to help her grandson. She was bereft, as any grandmother would be. So she asked around the camp, what may I do? My grandson is not well. And someone said to her, why don't you go to the Christian church? I hear they pray for sick people. So she did, a devout Muslim woman dressed in a black burqa. She asked the pastor if he could help her grandchild. He answered wisely, he couldn't help her that grandson medically or financially, but they certainly could and would pray. And after an intense session of prayer, the Syrian refugee grandmother returned to the camp, her home in the camp. The next day, her daughter called from Germany and said something amazing had happened her grandson was well the woman ran right back to the church to tell the pastor and the other prayers the good news and then she came back to the camp telling all those that she could find near and far that the christian church prayed for my grandson and now he's well this pastor and his church know what knows what it means to store up treasures in heaven right Well, verses 22 to 23 in Matthew 6 deal with not only having our heart in the right place, but having our eye or sight be sound and healthy. Our eyes are often the windows to our souls. And you can often tell how things are going with people through what they are communicating with their eyes to you. As our eyes affect our body, showing us what we are doing and where we are going, so our ambitions affect our whole life. Spiritual vision can help fill our lives with drive, purpose, and generosity. Are you and I being generous? Are we being warm and kind to others? Are we approaching those around us with mean and critical spirits? But just in case we're not getting the point, Jesus says simply in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Full stop. The message says, you can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. So you and I can't be devoted to God if if we are devoted to money and the things money can buy. These are rival affections. Money is like drinking the beach. The more you drink it, the thirstier you'll get. We can't compromise and serve both. God says simply to us, I am the Lord, this is my name. My glory I give to no other. And trying to share our loyalty with someone or something else is idolatry is choosing between the creator and his creation, between worship and idolatry. And my brothers and sisters, the scripture is more than clear. In our world where author Al-Shee says, consumerism is our religion and consumption is our gospel, what are we doing with our wealth and our goods? The fact that you and I had choices this morning about what to wear, what to eat, when to come, means we're wealthy. People who aren't wealthy don't even have a choice about those simple things. Is our wealth for ourselves? Are we sharing and looking out for the needs of others? Mammon is often translated money, and mammon has a Hebrew root meaning, entrust. Mammon was the wealth people entrusted to bankers to keep safe for them. But over time, mammon's meaning got twisted, Instead of being what was entrusted, it became what people put their trust in. God has entrusted us, though, with all that we have, and we've been entrusted by God to support, um, uh, and, but we've twisted it so we are now trusting things to support us. How topsy-turvy is this? Jesus' disciples are marked clearly by our attitude towards money. You can't worship God And you can't worship money both. Well, now that I'm never going to get invited to any social gatherings for the rest of my life, (laughs) let's move on to the rest of the chapter. Closely related to the theme of money is worry. I can tell some of you don't recognize this iconic tune (laughs) but it's by Bobby McFerrin and it's a song from the late 80s I know before some of you were born Um, it's song is Don't Worry, Be Happy but it's harder than it sounds right to not worry Matthew 6, 19 to 24 Jesus calls us to think and here are the alternatives we should weigh them carefully what kind of treasure do you want to invest in corruptible or incorruptible What do you want to fill your eyes with, light or darkness? And what master do you want to serve, God or money? Well, if you choose heavenly treasure, light, and God, bing, 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 right answer. (laughs) Jesus says says in verses 25 to 34, don't be anxious about your own security, but instead be concerned about God's rule and his righteousness. Well, are you up to doing a little something different uh, this morning as we read this next portion of scripture? Yeah? Let's go in a time machine, pretend we're going back to the ancient monastic church somewhere where we are divided half and half along this way. This half and this half. And if we were in a real monastic kind of situation, the brothers or the sisters, the cloister sisters, would be facing each other, and the altar and the cross would be behind us and they read to one another. It's called antiphonally, back and forth. So one group reads, the other listens, the other group reads, and the side listens. So we're gonna read this next portion of scripture that way, okay? So this is the first group. I know we can do a grace chapel, I know you can. And those of you in other campuses, you're not out of it either. You gotta divide up half and half. The first group will read the first paragraph. The second group will read the next paragraph, and then we're gonna read the bottom, par- the last paragraphs together. Okay, just follow me. We got it. Right. So, and when, when you're hearing the scripture read to you, listen to what it's saying and let it penetrate your hearts. Okay, this side. Let's be together. we worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to Him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Together. So don't worry about these things saying, what we will eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your Heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Thank you. Three times. We're admonished not to worry about food, drink, and clothing. God is powerful. He will provide for our needs. And how do we know this? He says, look at the birds and the flowers. God cares for them. And Jesus uses the argument of how much more. If God cares for the birds and flowers, how much more will he care for us, his beloved children? Okay, you're saying, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that God cares for birds and flowers. Yeah, I know the word God, God created masterfully sustains life, flora, fauna, top predators, etc. Yeah, for sure. I know in my mind's eye that worrying can't lengthen the number of hours in the day or add to my height. I stopped in fifth grade. And yes, God does a masterful job clothing his creation. That's why we go on vacations into nature to appreciate and be restored by the beauty God has created. But, come on, you're saying, to not worry at all, that's not natural, right? Well, if you're at all like me, when you see a sign in a museum that says, don't touch, you may look around, (laughs) see if there's a guard nearby, and if the coast is clear, and if the item is compelling enough, you might sneak a touch. There, this grandfather thinks he is a, he is a bi because his grandson touching this. <laughs> he really wants to touch it too. <laughs> so similarly, when Jesus tells us not to worry, I tend to worry. You know, whatever you do right now, don't think about a white bear. <laughs> gotcha, you're thinking about white bears. The the melting polar ice cap, the the last National Geographic special you saw, you know, when that polar bear was wandering off by himself, you think, oh, no, he's going to perish, there's no way for him to go. I know you're thinking about that. Well, Jesus is especially reminding us, his disciples and followers, not to worry about food, drink, or clothing. He isn't saying that we shouldn't think at all about what we eat, drink, or wear. Rather, he's saying that we shouldn't be engaged in anxious thought, Obsessive worry is incompatible to our faith in God. Anxious worry doesn't help. It's a waste of time, of thought and of nervous energy. And it's actually a sign of a lack of faith. 19th century Anglican Bishop Ryle said, prudent provision for the future is right. Wearing, corroding, self-tormenting anxiety is wrong. These verses here remind us of the folly of pursuing to an extreme temporal things. Instead, we're to replace these pursuits with goals of greater significance, pursuing things that last, like God's kingdom and his righteousness. In Proverbs 30, through 9, the writer says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. My immigrant family came to the gold mountain of America searching for economic opportunity and security. That was their hamster wheel that they came to jump on. And along the way, thanks to European-American Christians who crossed cultural barriers to share the gospel with Chinese immigrants living in Boston, my parents and my grandfather found Jesus. And as a result, I had the privilege of knowing Jesus early in my life. And despite many decades of following Jesus, and some fewer years of being paid to be a professional Christian, I still struggle with choosing to make deposits in the bank of heaven. My retirement count and staying financially afloat are often much more what I find myself worrying about. And I'm not married, so who will take care of me as I age? That's worth a couple of nights of sleep, don't you think? Honestly, I make steps forward and I take big steps back. I have some wonderful victories and some crushing, faith-bruising defeats. But I still aim, with God's help, towards seeking his kingdom above all else. And I pray that I will be found faithful when Jesus calls me home. So as we conclude, here are some questions for you to reflect on. In a short while, I'll give us some time to pray and reflect. And maybe God is inviting you to respond to the truth of his word with an action step of obedience this morning. Is there one thing God may be saying to you to act on, to change, to repent of, to give to him? Let's join in prayer. Where, friends, are your treasures? What deposits are you making in God's treasury? Are you living simply so others can simply live? Are you being generous with your time, your heart and your affections, caring for those who may not be easy for you to love? If God is giving you material wealth, are you living mindfully and generously in touch with the needs of your neighbors and the neighbors that you have around the globe? Are you looking out for their concerns Do you advocate for people without voice in your place of power and influence where good can be done for them? Does your bank account and your calendar reflect God's kingdom priorities? Take a moment to reflect on these things and see if God may be inviting you to one thing, to act on, to change, to repent of, to give over to him. or well, perhaps God is stirring something in your heart and you feel like you're not done with business yet, the prayer chapel is always open for you to come and people will be there happy to pray with you or you can find some quiet space for yourself. So I want you to join with me as we read the benediction together. Um, read the words the in yellow, I'll read the parts that are not highlighted. For your goodness and generosity in giving us all we need, help us to praise you, oh God. In every circumstance of life, in good times and in bad, help, help us, us to, to praise you, O oh God. God. In love and faithfulness with all that we have and all, all that we have, help us to serve you, O oh God. Help us to serve you, O oh God. As you speak or write or listen to those nearby or far away, help, help us, us to share your love, O oh God. In our plans and work for ourselves and for others. Help us to glorify you, O God. In every thought and word and deed, by the power of your Holy Spirit this week, may we live for you, O God. Amen.